Welcome to That's a Wrap, episode number 25. Congratulations to us! Yeah, yeah. Twenty fifth. Uh, what is that in 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 wedding anniversaries? Isn't it? Is that Lenny? <laughs> is super. it? Is it a thing? <laughs> I'm sure it is, right? Twenty yeah. fifth. Yeah, I, I think so. Twenty fifth anniversary is silver. Sweet. No so way. So happy silver anniversary to wow. us. Time flies. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, for that's a wrap. I am Eric Marshall. And I am Nick Schlegel. And I am Christopher Gollin. All right. And uh, we're three guys with PhDs who like to talk about film and culture and media and stuff. Today we're talking about Snowpiercer. And uh, we're going to talk also about our favorite books about films. That's going to be segment two. Uh, but first, pickups. Uh, I don't know about you guys. We're on uh, the end of July right now. And uh, let me tell you about my July. My microwave died two weeks ago. Right? Oh no! Yeah, and I'm like, I'm one of those guys. Like, like a lot of people are like, oh, I don't use a microwave. I don't need a microwave, you know. And uh, you know what? I need a microwave. Oh yeah, <laughs> use them all the time. I keep going to the freezer or whatever. I'm just gonna heat this up, and I, God damn it, where's the fucking microwave? <laughs> so, as much as I like to be one of those guys who doesn't use a microwave, I use a microwave. Uh, a couple of days later, when I think life couldn't get any worse than a broken microwave, my PS3 dies. Oh, that sucks. Oh. Yeah. I don't yeah. know what's worse. I knew about that. Yeah, I do. The PS3 is worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then my internet was down for a couple of days, but that's that's okay now. Uh, it's been a July has not been a very good uh, month technologically speaking for me. I got to tell you that the PS3, I bought it for the Blu-ray player, right? Uh, but I ended up playing games on it and streaming Netflix and Amazon Prime and Vudu and Hulu Plus on it. And now that it's gone, okay, I have a Chromecast, which for 35 bucks was probably one of the best purchases I made this year mm-hmm. or last year, whenever I, you know, because I could still do Netflix through it. I can do Vudu through it, although not HD. Vudu won't let me do HD because of some HCMI compliant, something, 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 but whatever. Um, I cannot do Amazon Prime. I think I can do Hulu Plus, but I need to cancel it anyway because it's too expensive. But uh, so luckily I'm okay. But like I have all these. I just bought the Persona DVD and Blu-ray uh, at Barnes and Noble because they had their 50% off Criterion collection. I'm like, yes, I finally have a DVD and Blu-ray of Persona with a different translation. All this. I can't watch it. I don't watch the Blu-ray. <laughs> I can't watch it. So. <laughs> The PS3 going down was a was a huge blow. <laughs> that is a big, I, I'm sorry. Rest that sucks, peace. dude. I'm really I sorry know. to hear that. The tears. You see the tears. Uh-huh. Uh, what's up with you guys? <laughs> Who goes next, Chris? Yeah, what's up with uh, you, Chris? Sure. Talk to you in a while. Oh yeah, it's, sorry I missed the last one. Um, it's been a, a very very busy July, fixing to be an even busier August. I'm in the midst of full packing mode. Um, Getting ready to uh, getting ready to move in uh, just over three weeks from now from today. Um, 
so it's uh, it's been busy. Been living in a you know lots of boxes and planning um, everything going on for the fall. And it's it's knock on wood, everything's gone very very smoothly when it comes to the planning. Um, syllabi have been coming together. Everything administratively over at Westfield has just been an absolute dream. It's it's been um, a dream to work with them. So yeah, it's going it's going really well. It's going. I'll, I'll be happier when it's all done and settled, oh, yeah. you know, but at the same token, um, you know, the next, the next few weeks are going to be, uh, spending time with a lot of friends and dinners and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I am, I'm looking forward to that. So it's, it's kind of a double edged thing. Yeah. I understand it's, that. It's, it's good. It was, a, it was, a, it was a busy July. Good. Nick, man, I have just been writing, you know, every day writing seven days a week kind of all day long that's the full-time gig right now writing i've got as the listeners know i've got a, a book i have to finish and i'd like to get the majority of it finished by uh by september and i'm on track to do just that so i've been writing um and uh writing and writing and writing and then uh that's about it just more writing i'm writing so much i'm woozy but um <laughs> yeah but I want to go out with a bang. That's the idea here. So. Yeah, sounds good. It's a it's a good feeling though. I mean, it's exhausting, but it's a good feeling still, right? Yeah, we're proud of you, man. Yeah. Well, thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. I gotta tell you, um, uh, you know, additional things for me. I am um, first of all, I made this mic stand. Mm, you see? Yeah. Hey, I saw that. That's very, very cool. Nine dollar IKEA lamp uh-huh. that I dissected and. Uh, <laughs> 50 cent PVC pipe, a little construction paper so it doesn't look bad, and some rubber bands. I, I can put it up like, on there with I can like this and be like, yeah. the ace of spades, you know. I can do it, you could be Ira Glass. I could yeah. be Ira Glass. So <laughs> anyway, yeah, I hope it improves my posture. But the other thing, Very nice. Very impressive. I'm going to edit that because people can't see it, but you know. Um, the I other thing the is. Ace of spades reference, don't worry about it. The ace of spades, yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, the other thing is, after our last episode of when we uh, when we uh, Nick and I reviewed Room Two Thirty Seven, I decided to uh, read The Shining. Mm-hmm. I've I'm a voracious reader, as you both know, and I've never read a Stephen King novel, which I've chastised you for many times. How how have, have you made it this point and not having read a Stephen King novel? Well, That's I've been wild. reading with, with, all, with all the reading you do. Well, a couple months ago, I would have said, "Well, it's because I'm reading real literature." <laughs> real literature. But, but now that I, that I'm about two thirds of the way through The Shining, uh, first of all, Stephen King is is a master of words. He's a very good wordsmith. Uh, it's been it's been a really ple- real pleasure to read in terms of like just the language and everything. Yep. But I got to tell you guys. I'm having some nightmares. I'm having some bad dreams. I'm oh my god! Yes, thoughts. are you kidding? That's what. That's that's how King got me with Salem's Lot. The first first book I read of his when I was twelve. I I would throw that book across the room and then run over and pick it up because I because it was you know. And then the worst thing would be like when you know I I'd read something and then suddenly like I would. In fact, here I'll just a, a momentary digression, Eric. I don't mean to hijack this, but this 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 speaks to. <laughs> I was staying at my buddy Leon's when I was an undergrad many, many moons ago. And I was rereading the Salem plot for maybe the, I don't know, sixth or seventh time. It was one of the books I used to just travel with. And Leon was gone. 
and I was, you know, lying there on his couch, and you know, he had this old, old home, probably 1870s. It was built, and um, sort of like a Gothic revival type house, and. You know, it was it was like a fall autumn night, and I'm reading Salem's Lot, and there's this part in Salem's Lot um, where Matt Burke says uh, um, to Ben Mears, or no, sorry, to Susan Norton, "There's somebody upstairs." And in the 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 novel, it's sort of like your blood just sort of like stops and runs cold, you know, because it's just like he breaks this big long paragraph he's talking, and then he just goes, "There's somebody upstairs," and of course there mm. is. It's a vampire. Okay, but at that precise moment, I heard a floorboard creak upstairs at Leon, <laughs> and I went nuts. I mean, I I was like scared. I ran ran into the kitchen, grabbed a knife, and then was sort of walking up. Speaking of The Shining, kind of walking up the stairs like like Shelley Duvall, you know, with the with the butcher knife in my hand. And uh, I mean, I was and that King does that so well. Eric, you know, yeah, he does that, and yeah. Peter Straub does it beautifully too. Let me ask you guys: do you do you guys go to amusement parks and like ride roller coasters? When I was younger, my back wasn't so mm, fucked up. Sometimes, sometimes. So you guys, so you guys are now like, oh, I love them. Oh, I loved them when I was yeah. young. Yeah, yeah, I, I, they're a little harder to do now, now for me too. I yes, never I liked them. I never liked roller coasters, <laughs> and I think it's the same thing. Like I never liked roller coasters, and I never liked horror. Mm-hmm. Like I don't like horror films that much. I don't hate them, but I don't like them that much. And horror, like the Stephen King, this is freaking me out. I don't. I want to sleep through the night. I don't want to wake up thinking about like chasing my girlfriend down the hall <laughs> or being chased down the hall or whatever it might be. You know, right, right. I think I identify as much with Jack as I do with Danny. And oh my. Uh, but it's great, and I will definitely read more Stephen King well, when I'm see, done with the Shining. That's the thing, Eric. You're the uh, you're the exception to the rule because the paradox of the genre is that we're titillated and get pleasure and enjoyment out of being scared and frightened. Right, the adrenaline. That, that's the heart of the paradox of the genre itself. As you yeah. Hear. And you're the exception. You're like, you know what? I don't like it. <laughs> so that's why the, the genre never really clicked with you. Yeah, I'm cool with not being scared, <laughs> but no, but I'm enjoying it. I'll I'll read more. So that's yeah. But Room 237 did it because some of the people in that movie were talking about the differences between the uh, novel and the movie. And I was like, eh, I might as well watch. I might as well read the novel. I have it here, and yeah, here I am. Our, uh, first, our first discussion on King ever was you told me that as a as a pro stylist he wasn't your cup of tea, and I and I felt just the opposite, and so. Uh, I'm glad to see that you know maybe you're reevaluating your initial opinion. You know? Yeah, I had read some short stories, and uh, I don't know which ones, but I was like, oh, this guy's like too like you know purple, you know, it's just like oh, bleh, you know, like it's too much. But I was used to really sparse science fiction, you know, Asimov and Bradbury. Man, eh, not Bradbury so much, but Asimov. Uh, yeah, but no, now that I'm older, and maybe I'm reading a better piece, you know, maybe those short stories weren't the way to go. But yeah, yeah, I'm. I'm yeah, I mean, King King can be. At times, hit or miss. I mean, I, I like about eighty percent of what I've read, and there there have certainly been some books that he's done that are that I think are duds, um, where oh, he yeah. just he just kind of rambles on and on and on he, and on. Yeah. And on. Well, there's no question. But that's 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 just his batting average. When you've been doing something that long and right that consistently, you're going to have some. You're going to be all over the place: singles, doubles, triples, home yeah. runs, right. grand slams. 
And yeah. oddly enough, in the beginning of his career, I mean, it went Carey, Salem's Lot, Shining. That was his initial three novels. You know, I mean, how can you beat that? And then he followed that up with stuff yeah. like, oh, Cujo, Dead Zone, Pet Cemetery, Cujo, yeah. uh, Christine. I mean, he was just on an absolute roll for a while there. Yeah. Just, when you when you when you put out as much as he does, you know it's 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 like Woody Allen or or like a lot right. of artists, I was gonna say, you know, just Franco. Woody Allen, yeah, or, or just <laughs> sure, just Franco, yeah. I mean, any artist that puts out a lot, you're gonna you're gonna hit and you're gonna miss, you know the and, and you're hoping you hit more often than you miss, you know. Sure, sure. It's, I always think of the uh, baseball, you know. I mean, if you if you hit one in every three. Uh, pitches, you have yep. 333 average. Yep. You're in the Hall of Fame. You're in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> you know? yep. You're missing. You're missing 66% of your fucking pitches, and, and you're, you're in the still Hall of Fame. Hall of fame. So, right. yeah, if, you, so. if you birdie every third hole, per, you know, I you're mean, a pro. You're, you're going to be yeah. a pro. Yeah, it's like, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah. We should probably get to our main feature, to our to our uh, principal photography, I suppose. Yeah. Anything else to add, guys? Nope. Really. I'm the one that sidetracked us. (laughs) That's okay. Okay. Yeah, I know King will do that, right? So uh, we're going to talk about Snowpiercer here in a second. Welcome to Principal Photography <laughs> of episode number 25 of That's a Wrap. We're going to talk about Snowpiercer. 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 Uh, so Nick Nick brought this movie to us. He was like, hey, let's talk about Snowpiercer. And, and Chris and I were like, oh, okay. And sure. um, so we both watched it. And um, I think, yeah, and so um, I think... I know Chris and I watched it on video on demand. Uh, Nick, did you watch it in, on VOD as well or on in the theater? Uh, no, Don had bought the Blu-ray from YesAsia.com. Oh, well, well. <laughs> That's special. Wow. Okay, so you probably had a better viewing experience than we did. But none of us saw it in the theater. We all saw it in VOD, which I think we're, right. we'll probably talk about later on. Um but we all, we all saw it this week. It's one of those rare things that gets released, uh, you know, a, a day and date release where it gets released in the theater and the uh, and VOD at the same time. And it's yes, um, which is something we want to talk about, I think. Yeah, we're, yeah, we'll definitely talk about that. And um, but before we talk about that, we'll we'll, we'll go through a quick kind of synopsis and, and reaction and, and kind of review of the movie. Um, we're gonna do the first part of this discussion spoiler free. Right. So uh, if you have not seen the movie, you can safely listen for the next several minutes, uh, and we'll let you know when the uh, when the spoilers come. So right. um, if you have seen the movie, who cares? Don't worry about it. But if you haven't, well, you can. You're safe for now, right? And uh, I think this is the type of movie that you probably don't want spoiled. Right. Uh, I, I imagine. So uh, keep keep that in mind. So the the premise of the movie, it's a uh, God, how do I even explain it? It's a futuristic movie. It's it's in the future. It's a dystopian movie. Basically, to prevent global warming, uh, they, whoever they are, have, have released 
chemicals into the atmosphere, which completely freezes the earth and kills all life forms. Uh, this is <laughs> inadvertently, <laughs> inadvertently, of course. And it's in the, uh, and this is all in the prologue. This is all in prologue. And so the actual it was, movie it was called CW seven is what they, yes. what they release in the atmosphere. Yeah, right. I believe that's what it's called. Yeah. And so the, the premise of the movie is, is that the, all of humanity is, is, on a train. Everybody who's left is on a train called Snowpiercer. And it starts in the rear of the train where uh, the kind of lower class live. You know, people are really crowded in together. They're very dirty. They have to eat these weird protein blocks that look like black jello. And, um, and they're planning a revolt. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that's the premise of the movie. And, you, you kind of get, and you know, this is all in the trailer, so it's not a spoiler at all. You kind of get that the people in the front of the train are the kind of more well-to-do, uh, the one percent, the one percenters. Well, <laughs> certainly in this in this case, they're definitely like almost literally, literally right? One percent. Yeah, they might be like the nine percent. I don't know, but yeah. uh, but they're definitely like you know the hoi polloi, and they they occupy the front of the train, and. You know, the kind of the majority of people are in the back of the train um, being treated like shit, basically, by these like really heavy handed guards. And, you know, it's 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 a real it's a real class struggle. Let's put it that way. And the and the premise is that the that the lower class uh, rear of the train people are going to revolt. And for some reason, this train has to keep moving. For some reason, <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that's unexplained in this movie, but but like everybody's on a train, everybody else is dead, and and this is it, you know. And um, and I think that's enough for the premise. Sure. Um, beyond that, we could we could talk. I think quite a lot without spoiling anything before we move into spoilers. But um, <sighs> Nick, since you brought it, like, what brought it to your attention? This movie. Well, two things really. One was um. I'm a huge train film guy. Yeah. I love films that take place on trains. There's the trains. There's not that many, you know, there's like uh, a good dozen to 15, maybe 20 tops films that truly take place on trains. Like the majority of the film take place on trains. In fact, Eric, I remember um, uh, making you watch uh, narrow margin, which is a great train movie. Remember, you know, the narrow, the narrow margin, the film noir. Um, that really is a Really good train movie, and yeah. most and, and most a lot of it takes place on the on the train. Yeah, it's a, it's uh, a, I have not seen that. Yeah, two t- more than two thirds, about seventy five percent of of it, and yeah. it's a, and it's got a yeah. lean running time, and and that's yeah. just you know. But there's many, 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 and I'm such a sucker for them. I write at length about a, a great a train movie called Horror Express, in, in my book, which is a right, it's a, a lot of fun. Um, so there was that, and then secondly, Don, my friend Don May from Synapse Films was. Uh, had been talking about it and, and uh, Don's very always juiced into what's, what's going on. So he had talked about it and we were waiting for the, the Blu-ray to come in and entertainment weekly had done a piece on it and it had been, it had been gathering some momentum. So we watched it a couple weeks ago and, um, and yeah, my initial response to it was, was really positive and enthusiastic. And uh, I mean, you know, not to say that the film, it's a perfect film or anything like that, but um I you know I thought it was uh, uh, one that would really kind of be perfect for us to talk about because it's this sort of international co-production with this in, very interesting international cast 
and uh and i thought we could later on talk about like what it means to um distribution models and and the tens of millions that are typically thrown into marketing campaigns that were not thrown into this and that's what kind of made me want to talk about it and i initially had talked about doing a double feature we would do this and then uh, under the skin but we're going to hold off on under the skin for a, a show in the on the next you know next show or two we'll probably get to that yep yep good 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 um I, I hadn't heard a whole lot about it before I saw it. it you, you're the one that brought it to my attention. Um, but sub, but subsequently, uh, you know, after watching it and even before watching it, it just keeps popping up in social media and other places. And it's getting a lot of kind of viral, I think, attention, mm-hmm. um, which is which is kind of interesting because – and we'll talk more about the situation of its release probably a little bit later after our, after our uh, responses. But mm-hmm. – um, so you're the, you were the first one to see it. Um, do you want to respond first, Nick, to the kind of what you thought of it? Yeah, sure. In in general and in my response, um, I'm trying to think about what I can say about spoilers because in my response, I'll try and, you know, I'll, if I'm going to get to spoilers, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll mention it. I, um, I mean, the first thing I thought that was very unique about it was that, okay, here we've had this, this like world leveling um event just like say you know what was proposed at the end of fight club which wasn't world leveling but it was like debt leveling you know like everybody's going to start at zero and but this time we have like a literal uh you know event that sort of like resets everybody and yet on this train because the train was in direct competition with this chemical the military and the science couldn't decide whether to go with the ind- industry, which was the Snowpiercer, which was this idea that it would be this, you know, it could save the world and blah, 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 or, you know, go with the chemical. Well, they went with the chemical and actually it wound up creating a new ice age mm-hmm. and everybody died. And so all the people that were on the Snowpiercer survived. And I thought, okay, here we've got this microcosm, this Gilligan's Island on a, on a train here. And yet it's all about class all over again it's just like you know the haves and the have-nots it's like even when we wipe the slate clean the etch-a-sketch is completely sort of like you know wiped clean you never can truly wipe the etch-a-sketch clean there's always if you look there's little traces underneath which is like probably a good metaphor for our psyche in the sense that it's the it's all about basically power and wealth you know and as as they move along the train um, we go from sort of like tiers of society. Um, I got completely derailed. Ah, get it? Derailed. Tiers of society. Tiers of society as we're moving um, up the train. Yeah, t- right. And so as we move move up the train, we we sort of like move up through the tiers of society. And and you know, I thought, okay, well, for, on one regard, this is sort of very on the nose and very topical and and very sort of one percent. And on the other hand, it just, you know, it there was something that rang kind of pathetically true about it at the same time, you know? And so I was like conflicted in in it and in this milieu. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy the ride and, and literally enjoy the ride because that's what it was. It was this, uh, um, it, it takes a year for the Snowpiercer to go from, from its start point all the way around to and circumnavigate the globe and end up. And that's a fun scene when they actually have Happy New Year, you know, on the train. <laughs> yeah. So that was great. And so, I mean, those were my initial reactions to it. 
And so I, I kind of just sat back and really let it envelop me. And um, it, it, it wasn't hard because it was really cool. I thought the score was really cool. There were some great touches. The first time they meet with resistance by those like really... Hold on. Don't get... <laughs> yeah, I suppose I should do that yeah. right there. Yeah. The score yeah. was really good, though. I think that was um, Marco Beltrami. Yeah, Marco um, Beltrami nailed who did, it. Who did the score, the incidental music. And it's funny because, you know, from a, a film scoring, it's, it's not like there's a real theme, um, musical theme or leitmotif to the film. Um, however, the, whenever that incidental music kind of pops in there, it is done very, very nicely and it's subtle and it really adds to um to the the, the set pieces so yeah the, the definitely definitely really good music yeah there are yeah. some there's some scenes where beltrami really punctuates the on-screen action with some really like you know like resonant music that kind of like freaks you out too so yeah i, I agree and that um, that um I was, I was. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm sorry, but just um, the the one thing that was kind of that New Year scene. I thought was was really cool because it reminded me of that whole Christmas armistice that they talk about in in uh, World War One. So it was. It's like you know they have the new Year, the Happy New Year and then everything everything yeah, really stops. People stop fighting. Right. And then the second New Year's is over, just like in, you know the Christmas armistice. Oh, Christmas is over. Let's, you know, we, we just drank together, whatever. Let's go back to killing each other. Yeah. Um, on, a, on a really general sense, I, uh, I love the film. I thought it was really good. I mean, it had some really serious plot problems and it had some, you know, some, some weird logistical, just some weirdness going on, which we can get to later. But overall, um, the performances were good. Tilda Swinton is amazing. Oh, man. Yeah, she's great, man. Like, I love Tilda Swinton in probably 90% of what she does. I agree. But this, but this she really did a really, <laughs> really good. This is amazing what she did. This is almost uh, Oscar-worthy for her performance. I was thinking that. Yeah, I was thinking that, yeah. too. Um, just just amazing. And it's it's and, this great, really interesting cast. And and a, really, a cast that puts forth some really good... Um, uh, performances that I think that um, the cinematography yeah. Yeah, to me the best things about this film were the cinematography and the set design the set design of the train very cool yeah excellent and the cinematography were were really really good I think that um, that's that that won me over in a lot of ways and we can talk more about that probably a little bit later but um, the, the performances were good uh, I'll tell you what I you guys, you might not know this about me, but I'm really bad with actors. I can never figure out who's who. Mm-hmm. I can never. This is so stupid, but like, I will see an actor and be like, "Oh, I know that face from somewhere," or "Oh, I know that person, but I don't know his or her name." Or like, I do that all the time. I'm so bad. I'm the opposite of you, Nick. You know, I am so bad about. You know, you can see like some bit actor, like someone like who's like it was kind of like almost extra, and you'd be like, "Oh, I remember her from blah 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 blah." I'm That's like, true. oh. Yeah, but and they have this encyclopedic knowledge like that. Yeah. So, and Chris, you might be in the middle of us, but I know that I'm Nick and I are definitely on the extremes. And I have to admit, and this might be a, a credit to the actor, I didn't realize huh. until 
a couple days later when I read it somewhere that the main character, or I guess I guess I think it's the main character, is the is Captain America. Yep. And I've seen and I've seen I've seen Captain America and the Avengers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's Chris Evans. So either he put a really good performance in, or I'm he just stupid. I mean, the whole thing's anchored by John Hurt, who's tremendous yeah. in whatever he does. Yeah. I was yes. quoting him not not long ago. In fact, I got I recently I got a Paul Schofield autograph, and I was I was quoting on Facebook a line that he says to John Hurt in A Man for All Seasons, which is what 66, 65? Yeah. 65. So I mean, like that's how long John Hurt's been doing this. I mean, he's a, he's just phenomenal, and that was one of his earliest films. But uh, he does anchor that beautifully, um, and uh, yeah, it's. Yeah, I have to agree with you, Eric. That the cast is is fantastic. We get these real intimate close-ups of Tilda Swinton, um, yeah. and with those and, uh, de- weird dentures. Weird dentures. Yeah. I kept thinking to myself, for Christ's sake, if you're gonna have dentures made, man, how, why not have them like made them look? You know, make, make you know, they could be like made to look good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or just part of the, It's part of the character, though. Part of the character, yes, and. Yeah. Um, and the cinematography, one, one of the things that I noticed pretty early on was I remember nudging Don when we were watching it that I was not pleased with the aesthetic in the action sequences down in, you know, the, the, the rear of the train, that the fight sequences were shot real close up and really shaky. Like they were yeah. just so shaky. I couldn't tell what was going on. And I kind of nudged him and said, I don't like the aesthetic of these cuts. And yet, as you know, but what we've what I, what we quickly found out was that like the the nature of where you were on the train and the circumstances of where you were dictated the visual style and the cutting and the aesthetics of the sort of like cinema apparatus stuff like the editing and the and the the mise en scene and the, mm-hmm. and the cinematography and the blocking sort of like became more sophisticated as you went up, <laughs> especially the set design. And I thought, well, that was really pretty cool. Sorry, yeah, that was really paying attention to detail there. Um, yeah, I, I pretty much felt the same way. Um, thought the same thing about those those action sequences. Um, I really liked the film. I don't know if I said I um, would say I loved it. Uh, I love train movies as well. Not as much as Nick, but I, I really like train movies. Um, I think, and I, I, I think it was Nick, one of you guys said it, where you just sort of sit back and had fun, and that's kind of what I did with this film. Uh, once you you know do the whole suspension of disbelief, and once you get past the inherent desire to just poke poke plot holes um, in, in the film and 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 rip it to shreds, um, it, it really is enjoyable. Um, I hadn't heard much about it either. I did read that it was based on a graphic novel, which I've since um, picked up, and I sent to you guys so i'd like to read the graphic novel but uh i you know when i when i read like the brief synopsis i think i was looking on imdb about it i you know post-apocalyptic it all takes place on a train um i really i really didn't have high hopes i i thought well okay um you know it's kind of seen before and 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 to a certain extent that is like that um it's I, I found it somewhat predictable. Um, you kind of know what's going to happen. You know, it, 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 I don't want to like I said, I don't want to spoil it, but if you watch the film, it is it, it is pretty predictable. But at the same token, it was a really fun ride, 
and the performances, um, kind of like you guys, the, the, the thing that kind of kept me going and really won me over with this film is the performances, the cinematography, the, the, the music, um, the change in the editing style from the rear to the, to the front of the train. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's a visual kind of a visual feast. So aside from the plot and the fact that, you know, you pretty much know what's going to happen in, in the first 10 minutes. Um, I, I, I did like it. I, I, I did like it. Yeah. Good, good. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, I agree with, I agree with Nick about, um, about hurt, you know, being a real anchor to the thing. Um, and I have the exact opposite reaction to the actor they cast for the other side of the train, but we can get that a little later because I feel like even that's kind of a spoiler, even though everybody knows he's in the film <laughs> because it, you know, he shows up later, but we'll, we'll talk about that later. But, um, you know, this is a Korean director, mm-hmm. um, doing a film with, his first film with um, with American actors. I think it's his first film with American actors. But first English language yeah. film, I think. Yeah, first English. That's a, that's a better way to put it. And you know, I think some people read this as like you know a, a Korean take on a the American blockbuster. And I'm not sure that that's quite what's going on here. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's released in the summer. You know, and it was it's blockbuster season. You know. Um, and, and all that, and it has a lot of the uh, hallmarks of a blockbuster: a lot of action, a lot of suspense, you know, stuff like that. Um, oh, Chris Evans, I guess, if you if you recognize him. Um, so there's that, but it's got this peculiarly not Hollywood feel to it. Yes. Do you guys agree? Oh, I agree. Yeah, I agree with that, and and it's an in, in explicitly and overtly political film. Um. Yeah, for me, yeah. Uh, they keep talking about the engine, the engine, the engine, yeah, the, engine, the great all-encompassing engine, you know, which I just thought was a very obvious metaphor for capitalism, and not, not, I'm not that I'm reading too much in there. I just yeah. thought that, given the state of what, where they were on the train and what was going on on the train and the that life that they were trying to recreate on that train that the engine was this metaphor for capitalism and then yeah. and I don't want I'm, I'm not going to give anything away here but there's you know you might want to just fast forward a couple seconds I'm, I'm not going to say what it is but I'm going to say that the last image of the film the very last image of the film you can't get any more sort of like liberal lefty than that you guys know what I'm talking about? Uh, oh, yeah, 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 we can talk about that later. But uh, I think that I would tend actually. I, I mean, I think I would uh, agree with that. Yeah, I mean, and yeah. I liked, I, I loved it. Frankly, I mean, I thought that last image was a beautiful. That was a great image. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll we'll hit that in a few minutes. We'll okay. hit the last but image it, in a few minutes. That ties into yeah. about yeah. the film being overtly political. It's a sure. political to yeah. be a blockbuster. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yes and no. Yes, I mean mostly yes. Actually, yes, yes, yes and no. <laughs> because <laughs> uh, I think there's a, you know, I think there's this trend in Hollywood right now. I'm thinking of uh, what was that film? Uh, it was it Elysium with Matt Damon. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see it. Uh, I doubt either of you saw it. No. But it was well known to be uh, this kind of real simple allegory for like the people in space are the one percent and the people who didn't 
come to space were like the 99% or something, right? Like, I think there, there have been a lot of like openly political films. I think trying to capitalize on the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement and this right. whole um, idea of the 1%, you know, and I think most of them suck and most of them don't work. I haven't seen Elysium. I, I don't plan to because I've heard some bad things about it. So um, correct me if I'm wrong in the uh, comments, listeners, uh, that's rapshow.com. That's a rapshow.com. Uh, but, um, yeah, but I, I agree with you, Nick, that it's too political to be a Hollywood blockbuster. It might not be too political to be American, you know, like a Hollywood film. Right. But yeah, you're right. Like your Hollywood blockbuster stays away f- uh, from most of that stuff on the explicit level. The explicit I totally level, agree. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that the 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 strength of the f- of this film in part is the political commentary. Absolutely. And, right. And I think that's also its weakness in some respects, uh, but mostly it's its strength. You know, the other thing about the train is, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys have read um, Ayn Rand's um, Atlas Shrugged. Um, Couldn't get through it. I, I hey. tried. I've hey. never read. It. I've never uh, picked it up. Hey. Don't bother. I'll tell you the plot right now. Um, <laughs> Don't bother. Yeah, no, it's a it's a piece of shit. It's fucking yeah. awful. <laughs> but I read the whole thing. You know, I, I listened to a lot of it on audiobook and and pushed through the rest in text. But um, it's um, yeah, it you know, there's a the great man who right. you know is the great capitalist who is a genius and and is just thwarted left and right by by the bureaucrats and the and the government agencies who want to steal his money via taxes and steal his ideas via copyright and patents and all this, right? But what was his profession? He built. Uh, train rails he built he built a superior rail for trains and if only the free market would have would have let him do what he wanted to do everything would be fine but instead the entire country goes into disarray and everything goes to hell and and john galt who is john galt everyone asks john galt comes along and, and makes this super secret society where 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 men are free to trade uh you know you know based on their based on their Innate talents, you know. <laughs> it's, Did it's you get any more snarky of a, dis- of, a, of, a of a description of a, a plot? It's a libertarian <laughs> bullshit, you know. And if you want to, if you want to hit me in the comments, hit me in the comments. That's fine. But I read it. But the thing is, train imagery is huge in Atlas Shrugged, you know. And you know, just to, you know, not to give away the end, but you know, Atlas is. <laughs> In, in Atlas Shrugged, like, the idea is Atlas is the great man and, you know, the idea of capital and individualism. And what if he shrugged and let the world fall into oblivion? You know, what if what if the great man said, forget taxes and socialism and, and, and you know, it's fucking bullshit. At any rate, trains, 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 trains are abound in Atlas Shrugged. And we all know that Ayn Rand is the patron saint. Forgive the mixed metaphor because she was a an atheist. That for for that I commend her, but um, <laughs> but she was she's the patron saint of free market capitalism and neoliberalism right now, right? And so the train imagery, like I know you guys love train train movies, but like to me, a movie that's so fixated on a train cannot help but bring up Atlas Shrugged and this whole. It, 
right? This whole kind of capitalist ideology, you know, this kind of like Rand Paul kind of like uh, fucking government, you know, sort of thing. So, anyway, that's that's not my entire take on the movie, but that's you know the whole. I think the train lends more to that. Now, was was the director thinking about this? I don't, I don't know, <laughs> but. It's hard not to not to think about that in this in this day and age. You know, when it comes the to director history. read Atlas Shrugged right before he uh, walked into the bookstore where he found the the uh, the graphic novel and decided to right. adapt the movie. Yeah, they were they were next to each other. Yeah, it was like yeah. <laughs> Atlas Shrugged, the Snowpiercer. Hey, wait, I have an idea. Hey, this mashup, a mashup, this is a mashup, right? a mashup. Yeah, yeah, I highly doubt it, but you know, but but as an American, you know. It, it's hard not to. It's hard not to think of that stuff. I would so. say to the listener that we could probably are entering into. We're free to talk about spoilers now. So are we there? Are you guys have anything non-spoiler to say? Yeah, like, like at this point, do you, either of you have anything non-spoilery to say? Um, no. <laughs> no. Well, in 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 reaction to what you just said, I would say that you know, uh, as a side point. Of course, the, I don't think that there is free market capitalism anymore. I think you know, with the sort of like. Um, the rise of the the you know parent company you know super conglomerates out there that basically particularly in the media industries uh, that we don't really see free market capitalism anymore. I think you know it's 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 very difficult to, to compete in in almost any. They talk about small businesses, but I mean how how can you go out and compete with verti- Excuse me, horizontally in, integrated empires that that mm-hmm. are so divested in their interests that you you know you 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 chase down just like eyeglasses and you find wow one parent company owns all the eyeglass company. you know and so i mean i think there is no free market capitalism anymore there's yeah. a veil of free market capitalism mm-hmm. well a true a true libertarian would say um there never was in yeah. a free market and we we should give it a chance because if only we could find a way to have a true free market well tell that to ti- yeah time Warner and comcast yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. tell that to all those conglomerates exactly yeah, that's the one. That's um, everybody, I think. Yeah, and the, and there's more to that for sure. Um, so we're gonna go into spoiler territory now. So if uh, you don't want to hear spoilers, fast forward to one hour and twenty minutes, where we start talking about the uh, video on demand uh, release system, how they release the film, and you should be safe at that point. Um, so it's spoiler time, spoiler time. Everybody dies in the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. That's that's pretty much it. I love the fight scenes. I know I'm great. on. I know I I'm on record. Like yeah. <laughs> I am on record uh, on this podcast of not liking fight scenes and being bored during fight scenes. The fight scenes in this movie are amazing, especially the slow motion stuff where those guys with the masks and the hatchet, when the, they think they're going to go forward. Oh, my God, that is amazing. I had goosebumps Really there. great. Oh, me too. That was like when they first opened that door and you see oh. these guys in masks over their eyes, which the there's absolutely no reason to have masks over your eyes. It's just in the music. And I, don't, I honestly do not understand what the guy cutting the fish open means maybe you guys do but anyway that whole scene starting there and through the entire scene through the fight scene through the new year's eve new year's like new year's, hey it's new year's hey we're on the bridge you know through that slow motion night vision shit is brutal and disgusting and 
amazing. I yeah, just that, love the slow motion. That was a, that was fucking great. Yeah, you know, Eric, and, and it actually starts all before that because you know the the girl sort of like pre precognition, right? She's got that sort of like ability to, and as they're trying to, to get her father to open that particular door to go to the next car, she suddenly goes like, "Don't open it! <laughs> Don't open it! Don't open it!" But Bad idea. Too late. Too late. They, yeah, it trips the mechanism. The door opens, and then you get that. You know, this. It's like a bunch of. Mm. Uh, I forget which Hellblazer it was that had the sort of like <laughs> fat face, you know, the which one of the Cenobites it was, but it was like a room full of those dudes waiting for you. And I was like, oh no, this is not going to go well. And of course, absolutely. When yeah, and then of, when when you find out that they cut the lights, you know, and and they all have their infrared vision, you're like, oh my god, this is just brutal. Yeah, because they know there's a tunnel coming. Right, which you know, it, it's interesting because like, let's back up a little bit. Um, most of the first part of the film happens in the rear of the of the train, and there are no windows in the rear rear of the train, and it's very claustrophobic. It's very, everyone's very tightly packed, and everyone's dirty, and 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 you know, and when they they make their way to the front, you finally see a window, and it's pretty amazing because i don't think as i don't know if you all you guys but i didn't realize we hadn't seen a window right. until then and i was like oh wow and everyone kind of looks outside because most of those people had either never seen outside or hadn't seen outside in the 17 years they've been on the train right you know because there are no windows which is really kind of crazy in itself right but then it becomes apparent that oh they're going into a tunnel and now it's going to be really, really dark because they cut the lights and those bad guys have infrared goggles and they absolutely slaughter the rebellion in a, in a really brutal manner. And it's, it's slow motion, a lot of it. And it's, and it's just, it's, and they seem to take glee in it. And there's a lot it's of strange, death. Un- yeah. yeah. Until they, until the rebels come back with fire, blinding the, the infrared and, and, and kind of gaining the, the high ground again, uh, the upper hand, I guess you say, there's no higher low ground in this case, but there's front and back, I guess. But uh, that, yeah, you're right. It was set up before that, but that scene, man, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Once that scene was over, I didn't. I don't care how many plot holes you have and and crazy shit. Like I'm, Agreed. I'm in. I am in it. I'm, I'm totally I have, in it. Yeah, that I agree too. That that fight scene was just phenomenal. Uh, actually, I think all the fight scenes were phenomenal. Um, yeah. That that the 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 children. The scene in the school was particularly chilling. Uh, but then when they when they whip out the machine guns. And they just start start blowing people away. Wow, that's that's cold. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a big deal too because there's this whole plot point about there not being any bullets left, you know. And there's this really ballsy point where the Chris Evans character takes a gun, puts it to his head, and pulls the trigger while it's still in the guy's hand, and it goes click, right? Oh, there's no more bullets, right? They have no bullets. So, Later on, the guy's like, "There are other things that are rumored to be extinct, in, in you know, in addition to eggs." And like, "What's that?" He's like, "Bullets." And they pull over. They have all these machine guns, and they just start massacring everybody. There, and there's oh, a lot. Of, that's the one thing you know. They they do that a lot in this movie, where they 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 say something, and then they 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 come back to it. Um, and maybe I mean maybe that's what the what the the fish 
scene has to do with the fact that because they you know they kill this fish, mm-hmm. they dip their axes in the blood, and at first I thought well maybe that's to seem like really badass. Yeah. But then they but then they remember though they later on they have that scene when they're in the aquarium. With the sushi. Oh, the sushi, right? And they're like, okay, well, everything stays in balance. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And then later on, since we're getting into spoilers here, I don't really give a fuck that I'm saying it, this. But later on, when um Ed Harris's character, Wilford, is saying it's all about balance. You know, we, we, we need to kill off um, save 18%, but kill kill the other 74% of the people because you have to have this constant balance. You know, it's like, it's like the perfect symbiotic relationship, right? The the front needs the child labor to to replace the working parts on the train, and the back needs the front to make the the protein jello blocks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which I, I admit, when I saw the scene of the ground up bugs, I just like ugh, I gagged. Uh, but that you know, it, it's it's kind of like I think it's kind of like that with the with maybe the the, the fish and the sushi. It's it's kind of reinforcing the that this is um, according to the film this kind of this this closed system like like a perpetual motion. I mean, system. I mean, that's essentially what a perpetual motion system is. It's it's a closed system that continually goes and goes and goes and goes and goes, and that's what. That's what Snowpiercer is. It's it's a closed system that is a complete symbiotic relationship. And when you when you fuck something up, when you take something out of that, then you have what what ended the film. You have you have chaos, you have destruction, and everybody dies in the end. And you know, and it betrays its own ideology there because, and that's what I think is also very cool, because in in no time in human history has our population doubled in fifty years. And you know we are we went from three and a half billion in the nineteen mid nineteen sixties to over seven, you know forty five fifty years later, which right. is absolutely unheard of. Yeah. And this this you know the the planet's telling us in in some in some specific and un, and unspecific ways. I can't take it. Yeah, there might be something coming our way to sort yeah. of like a balance or equalize all that. Beyond that. I would say that um, the scene in the, that Eric was mentioning in the, the, the school is a nice little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's a great indoctrinator into the education system itself as an apparatus for learning whatever it is that the system believes people should learn. State apparatuses. State apparatuses. Ideological state apparatuses. Just, uh, you know, that... Um, and and I thought that was very nice too. That that uh, knowledge is perpetuated just by those in power. Right. <laughs> right. Well. Right. Right. I, I, exactly. Uh, again, reinforcing this kind of this 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 circular circular system. Not to mention the the fact that I I thought that the, it was creepy. The the very the, creepy. The, yeah. the, the school yeah. scene was so. It was sort of like, oh, here, take a look. Here's some scum from the back of the train. Don't make fun of them. And then, you know, and then yeah, and the little the little girl does. They're like, they're the, they're the scum from the you know they they yeah. And they had that little chant about the, the little song that they're singing. Oh, oh my no, god, that was yeah. about Wilford. Yeah. That was oh god, that that scene alone gave me yeah. such chills it, it, well, it was it, kind of Hansel and Gretel you know it was like a, a sweet gingerbread house that was like rotting on the inside yeah. and, when, and when the teacher pulled you know when she pulls out her machine gun 
when the eggs are coming, you know, mm-hmm. and you're like, I mean, she just sort of like go, goes into this like gleeful massacre, you know. Yeah, she likes it. She yeah, she, she, she wants to blow the um away, the the you know the vermin away. I mean, that scene just, I think more than any scene in the film, just really it the, the indoctrination, um, and the the and I I guess you know the the way I was thinking about it. Is you know, and of course, there's this political. There, there's there's the political aspects of the film, which I agree, Nick, are completely explicit. But I, the thing that really made me creepy about that, the creep me out about the whole school scene, was this continual indoctrination of the far right and the homeschooling movement, and the, um, the it, it made me think back to a film called Jesus Camp. When they were talking, we are, we are we are teaching. We are making them soldiers for Christ and indoctrinating these little innocent children with this 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 ideology, the brainwashing them with this ideology. We're going to become soldiers for Christ, and we're going to you know. And then of course she pulls out the machine gun. I was like, ah, there 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 it is. It's 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 a, that criticism of the far right, and it, it oh my god, it made me it, it made my blood run cold. It really did. We should talk sometime about Jesus Camp. I I I, uh, I have a lot to say about that film, actually. Me too. Um, I teach that yeah. film. Actually, I use but, that film all yeah. the time to teach. Sure. And the scene, the scene in, in the school. That's uh, Allison Pill. She's the uh, teacher. Right. Right. And uh, I love Allison Pill. She was in Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Uh, she yeah, was in, she in Treatment, and you know, she's in in some and and she's almost. I didn't recognize her at first. But you know, <laughs> we've already established that I'm, right. I'm bad at that. But um, but she does a really good job. But you know what? That that scene itself, it, it was not. Yeah, you know, I I agree with everything uh, both of you just said. Um, but the way it's filmed, there are a lot of like these weird close-ups and can't you know kind of canted angles, right. uh, weird overhead things. Like it was, it reminded me a little bit of um, of um, what's the Oliver Stone film? Um. Uh, natural born killers. Oh, it reminded yes. me a little yeah. bit of natural born killers. Yeah, that's good. That yeah. it was very obviously mediated um, through the camera in a way in, in a way that that everything we had seen heretofore had not been. You know, it was the way the camera movements were, the, way the canted angles, all that. It was not just what was going on in the, in the scene. It was the way it was filmed that seemed very, you know, kind of indoctrinating in a yep. certain way, you know, and it's easy to make fun of because it seems really kind of, you know, they have these weird, uh, you know, Wilford is the, I don't remember the, right. the parables they had, you know, and all that. And, and there's a part of me that when I watch some of this, I think they've only been on the, trained 17 years right so for the adults to believe you know like tilda swinton wilford is sacred and all that stuff you know that seems kind of eh to me you know but but when you see like the eight-year-olds or the 10-year-olds or whatever they were born on the train they're train babies as someone says yeah i can see that i can see the indoctrination there for sure and they get you know and that's it's it's a it's, it's definitely like lampooning the the far right as chris said but i think the whole like Pledge allegiance to the flag right. and the under God stuff and religion in school. I mean, it, it it it's you know kind of a parable for a lot of different things in terms of uh, schools and and the way we, we impart values. You know. Oh but, yeah, and see, and look very, at yeah. I'm sorry, I, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, and look at look at the way when they are 
when they're in that one, they're in the school and they go, they, they go back those, um, and they look out to the window, the seven people who frozen to death because they tried to jump off. You know, it's, it's again, the indoctrination. If you try and leave us, this is what happened to the people. So if you decide to, uh, do this, you're going to go to hell. If you decide the the valorization through monuments. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is, which is definitely the type of, um, those those are techniques that the that the far right utilizes when they're trying to um, put their ideology into their children. I I hadn't thought about this until just now, but did that seven, um, the, the dead seven or whatever? They were, does that remind you of Iwo Jima? The 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 pictures of Iwo Jima at all? Um, I mean, when you say it, yeah. What, reminds, you it. I mean, what, what, what it reminds me of is just, yeah, that there's that there's a, you know, like you said, there's a, a commemorative site here, but it also serves as, um, I think, a facilitator of the plot to get to the end for sure. what's what's yeah. coming up, which is, you know, is it warming up a little bit outside? Is the main question. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, totally. Well, that, that was more with the plane on New Year's Day, but New Year's Eve, whatever it is. But yeah, it, that just came to me as Chris was talking. You know what I mean? I was just uh, that's that's uh, that just came to me. No, not like, that they're oh, yeah, melting. Jima. That they that they could escape. That they could get off. The oh plane. yeah, yes, 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 yes. Like the idea that oh you can get off uh-huh. this train. You know? Yeah, totally. I I agree completely. Um, uh, I, I hadn't thought about it until you just mentioned it. Yeah, neither neither had I until until you mentioned it. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. interesting. Up with me. The monument, yeah. yeah, the whole monumentalization. I could I could that's see so weird. <laughs> I could see the parallel. That's a that's an it might be a one. bit much. That might be a stretch. It might be a stretch. No, I, I, don't think so. I don't think it's a stretch. No, I I think <laughs> I can get on board with it. It serves as a visual reminder of of, of you know a, a monument. It's a monument to, to something that people can. But yeah, it's nice because it 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 signals what's to come and you know via that as well as the plane which they can see more of and mm-hmm. the, that door that they're going to try yeah. to blow, yeah. blow the way things are revealed in this film is pretty masterful because almost everything is foreshadowed in some way but for me i didn't see the foreshadowing until afterwards i was like oh yeah 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 <laughs> you know what i mean and yeah i was too engrossed really me too which it's i got to tell you nick doesn't happen that often these days, especially in the summertime. I agree. I, agree. I kind <laughs> yeah. of told, like yeah. I said, I I I, uh, I I was taken with the premise, and I was, you know, eventually just brought into the narrative. I was folded in and wasn't uh, wasn't second guessing anything. And it was that I was well into it by the time that they, right when the revolt began. And they decided that they had three, you know, two, one, they had the countdown, and they, they went up to the next uh, mm-hmm. car. I was kind of like all buckled up and ready to, ready to enjoy the, the ride. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it did not take long for me to sort of like, you know, ignore foreshadowing and things like that. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's, it's all there, though. And yeah. it wasn't until afterwards that it's sort of like all of the... Um, all of the very obvious invisible metaphor started to you know click very very easily. Yeah, I I agree completely. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, which I, I'm gonna jump way ahead now. Um, maybe I shouldn't. I don't know how much I should jump because I'm not sure where we are in time. But um, I want I want to talk about Ed Harris. Mm-hmm. You know, but maybe before we do that, 
I'm just gonna try to go linearly since the the film is very linear, linear, right? Like we're going from the back of the train to the middle of the train to the front of the train. <laughs> so let's go in order, I guess maybe. Um, but the um, one scene I love before we get to the Ed Harris thing, um, the Korean guy that they wake up from the sleep, right? Right. He's he has those two cigarettes and a scene where <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. He's just like, kind of, he's like, oh, I'm not going to give this cigarette to you scum, you know, whatever. And he's smoking it, you know, and they're like, ah. And finally he flicks it and everyone goes for it. And he just very casually does this like side kick, this right kick to the guy next to him. And very casually hits the guy. Like he's doing these like kind of moves, like, like what you would expect in a, you know, in, in kind of a martial arts film. But this has not at all been set up as a martial arts film. Right. And so, oh, so he's kicking everybody's ass really casually. Like, uh, that just blew me away. I, I just love great. that guy. Yeah, yeah, at that moment, I'm like, I love this guy. I'll, yeah, he was great. He was, yeah. he was really, yeah. he was a trip. Yeah. And I yeah. love the idea of all this petrified, like organic waste. Is there, is there like because there's yeah. Drug, yeah. Yeah. Drug, yeah. yeah, chronol, chronol. Which chronol. I'm curious if you maybe you would, like when, did one of you guys like research as to what, like what this the 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 inspiration was behind the name of this drug? Like was it was I, I was curious as a how they came up with the name Chronal. I mean, it might have been yeah. it might have been in the original French graphic novel, and it could mean something in French, and they just adapted it, and they translated the English. Pardon me. Was the graphic novel French? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The graphic novel was originally yeah it was originally in French. It was translated in English, and then um, the director uh, basically was in a bookshop, and he found the 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 graphic novel and read it and said, "Wow, this would be a great film." And that's oh, I didn't know that. how it happened. Yeah, I don't know what chronal means. And there's another thing that I want to maybe talk about um, in terms of the name of the of the John Hurt character, the uh, Gilliam. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I thought it was a, re- a, re- a reference to Brazil, which the well, yeah. How could it not be? Yeah. How could it not be? Right. So I don't know if that's in the comic or not. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to know because I haven't really read the comic. But like, whether it is or not, I guess kind of doesn't matter. But like, you hear Gilliam, you think Terry Gilliam, and you think Brazil. Brazil. Yeah. And you know, you get this guy who's got like a. Umbrella hook for an arm, and he's got a, you know, this weird, you know, like, like, you know, I would love to watch Brazil like side by side with this movie because there's very a, this very, that. you know, this oppressive very, kind of bureaucratic, similar. yeah, you know, this like oppressive bureaucratic class, and like the whole, it's, it, there's some homage going on to Brazil. There has I, to be. You know what, Eric? I also thought know? there's a slight homage going on to Wizard of Oz too. Oh sure, yeah, you know, yeah. That, uh, um, in in that, you know, it was all in pursuit of the great and powerful. You know, and then we get up there, of course, and it's yeah. like pay no attention to the man behind the, yeah. <laughs> the cogs of ideology, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So yeah, I thought there was a bit of that going on. In yeah. As well. Yeah. No, definitely. There's definitely an Oz thing, right? There's this great uh, person who is running the show and right. and creating meaning for these people and and all and creating order and all this stuff, right? And there is definitely that. And part of me, you know, I feel like if they had done an Oz thing and had like a uh, screen with a figure on it that might have been better <laughs> because you pleased with that were you yeah i want to I'm, I'm i'm trying to stall until until chris comes back in the frame here uh because I, I don't know if he can hear us or not but um but yeah i feel like you these guys are struggling towards this thing and wilford you know you have to kill wilford and gilliam's like 
if you if you see him, don't let him talk. Oh. Kill him first. You know, uh, cut out his tongue. Kill him. You know, Gilliam's like, don't let him talk. Right. And so part of you is thinking like, this guy's got some really good like rhetorical skills. You know, I'm like he's got the, you know, um, or or magical skills or whatever. You know, because right. everyone seems to worship the guy. You know, and, and we realize later that maybe it's just because Gilliam didn't want to be ratted out on. You know, because right, um, but. Yeah, you know, they get to the front, and the Korean guy and his daughter are—they're um, all about getting, like, getting the chrono so they can blast their way out of the train, which is exactly. nothing. And nobody has thought about this, right? There, everyone's like, get to the front of the train and take it over, but they're like, no, let's get out of the train, right? Oh, and his little speech there is so incredible. Yeah. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, they're the real main characters of the film is the Korean uh, guy and his and his and his uh, daughter. But you, you you get to the front and there's this guy in this really spacious cabin and he's got his little hibachi grill and he's grilling with I can only assume his baby or or kid or that's uh, like Hugh Hefner got the bathrobe on. Yeah. And he's got his weird little assistant. Yeah and he hey, turns around and it's and it's Ed Harris and you're like, oh shit. You know, because I saw the Truman Show, you know, and I saw <laughs> The Rock, and I saw all the movies where, like, like I love Ed Harris. I Holy think he's a good shit, actor. Jackson Pollock is, is, is his pirate, pilot yeah, of the Jackson train. Jackson Pollock is nice. Jackson nice. Pollock. Yeah. Very nice, very nice. Um, but, you know, he's every time he's like, you know, he's got those fucking those penetrating blue eyes, and he's like, this is the order of things. Uh, what's what's the main character's name? Wilford. Oh, Curtis. No, no, no. Oh, Curtis, 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 this is the order of things, Curtis. This is the way things are. Like, just I can sit here and be like, "Don't you understand, Truman? This is this is life. This is the way people want to see." You know, like his his speech at the end reminded me too much of his speech at the end of the Truman Show, where he's just like this, like you know what I mean? Like, it's just it's just a lot of exposition and a lot. Basically, of Basically, Ed Harris playing a character that Ed Harris usually plays. Yeah, and that takes away a lot away from me because I'm like, I, I get it, you know, and I, I if if you're gonna do that role, it's like, oh, let's get Ed Harris. I I totally get that, but to me, I'm like, oh, I, I know exactly what's going to happen. He's gonna be like this holier than thou, above everybody. He's gonna explain everything. He's gonna be wrong, and yeah, you know, and I I thought it was like I love Ed Harris, and you know, who do you think would have been a better actor? That's a really good question. I don't know who would have been a better actor uh, for that. You know, that or nobody. You know, it could be. You know, I could see this being just an empty, you know, kind of kind of position with a with a screen. That's like a tough question. You know, that's a tough no question. Wilford. Yeah, there is no Wilford. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who would be better for that. But but there's a sense of like Ed Harris is just he he spends so much time explaining. You know, there's so much exposition at the end of this film about. This is the way things are. Seventy-four percent. You, you need to take ecology. over. You need to take over for me, which is totally weird as well. And then the whole thing about Gilliam being in on it. You know, like on one hand, I'm like, oh, that's masterful in terms of narrative. Oh, turn it on its head. The guy who started the revolution is part of the whole thing, and they're sure. in league. You know, and that's what we, in some ways, you know, you want to believe that, like. You know, everybody's co-opted. You know, I always I've said this before on this podcast. I always thought the best. Um, possible ending of the original matrix would have been that neo wins and then you pull back and you realize that everything outside of the matrix is still in the matrix right <laughs> you cannot escape right yeah. and that's 
and that's what this film is trying to do at, at that point. But I don't buy it so much. I'm like, why would Gilliam put himself in that situation where he's in poverty and he's talking to the dude on the phone all the time and he's eating this? Yeah, stupid, I, you know? I, I have to agree with you. I, I, um, Don and I were talking about this, whether or not what um, Wilford was saying was the truth or not regarding Gilliam. That he and Hi- he, those two were the yin and yang, basically of of the the closed system. In, in, in ensuring it and preserving it and uh, I, I i wasn't entirely sure because like you said he tells him to cut out his throat or cut out his tongue don't let him talk and yeah one way of looking at that could be because he doesn't want him to rat him out but but if he does cut out his tongue i mean the revolution is basically guaranteed then they succeed and therefore the yin and yang are destroyed anyhow so it's like you really don't know which 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 is the truth you know and and i don't think the film balances it more into one camp or the other i think that's really kind of left up for for you to decide you interpret no i i agree with that i mean i i i think we also have to remember that the the ed harris character wilford is an unreliable narrator so we 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 have to kind of take what he says as a grain of salt um I, I admit that when he says when he said uh, I want you to take over for me, I I let out a groan so loud it, it was it, I thought that just that ruined it because it felt true though in in life. We but just, I I know but but it, it felt like immediately you know it felt like you know president takes over Luke you are my father you know <laughs> and, and, you know that which was done in Star Wars and then it felt like when they when they they, they did it in that stupid Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull oh i'm your father you know it, it's like you got to take over for me i was like oh please you no, know i, I roll you, like you said you could see these things coming i could see these things coming no what else is he going to do he's an old man he's he's he wants him to take over basically he discovered perpetual motion, but he can't discover some way to keep him alive for longer. I mean, yeah. no, no, no. He says he's tired, he's bored, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to do it any longer. So, I mean, I, I, I so like, what's he gonna do? He's gonna re- he's gonna retire in the lap of luxury to some other part of the train. I, 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 no, I mean, it's irrelevant what he's gonna do. The, you're saying that you rolled your eyes when it was. I did. It was gr- It was just it, but the way that the line was delivered. That it was predictable earlier. So I, I that predictability didn't bother me, uh, because I thought the premise of the film was so striking. Right. The premise, I, the train, the microcosm, the classes, yeah. the struggle, the whole yeah, I mean that's that's pretty I, good, guys. I agree with Chris that like the whole with Wilford like, you need to take over now. That to me was like what? Why? <laughs> you know? I, I did agree with that. But I forgive this yeah. film most of its logical problems. Like 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 there are a lot of plot holes in this film. <laughs> yeah. And I forgive I forgive almost all of them. That and, one I have no problems with. And I'll tell yeah. you why, Eric, because he's what do they say in the Invincibles when the character monologuing? Okay, so Ed Harris is like monologuing and chewing up scenery and that is more of a problem than him oh yeah what he's actually saying and so when he says i expect you to take over for me i mean i saw that basically coming and didn't have a problem with it i think the monologuing in general was the problem oh i agree completely with the monologuing i agree that that's that's the biggest problem of this film at the end the end of this film yeah now the that harris character uh the part where um the chris evans character is like Oh, there's this time when they were gonna eat this baby, and like you know, the thing I hate most about myself is I know what human tastes like, mm-hmm. and what's worse, I know that baby tastes best. I'm like, oh come 
ah, yeah, yeah that was pretty like, silly. Like, like that, like that monologuing. It's and, on the but, nose. Yeah. It's too on the nose. Yeah, exactly. Although the whole idea of that guy who cut us off his arm was Gilliam, and that guy who wanted to steal baby was me. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, I get that. Yeah. But, but like all the that cops there because he puts his arm down into the machine to stop it. Right. right. Absolutely. Set up and pay off. Redemption, pay yeah, the redemption is <laughs> definitely there. I agree with you on the monologuing. But when he was like, take over for me, I was like, like it just took me too on the process. I'm like, why? Why is he doing this? You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like it didn't seem consistent. But like you said, Nick, I I, I forgave it because okay, yeah, I've come this far and, and it's 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 been a great film so far, you know. And and the beauty, gentlemen, is that that's not the end. The end. That's right, just the climax. Right, the right. ending is the best part. Yeah, the yeah, ending so, is fantastic. Yeah, so so far what we've got, it, it, and like you see in a lot of films, you see a uh, class struggle, mm-hmm. a revolution, but filmmakers never know, and, and, and people in real life never know what to do after the revolution. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> that's the that's always the problem. It's like, you know, now what, right? So the revolution succeeds, uh, kind of mostly, right? right? Um, because you find out that they're using five-year-olds as parts in the train, and, and people are interchangeable with with machinery, and that's completely consistent with you know a lot of Marxist ideology and a lot of like this idea of you know they're they're using these people's like they have surplus value like but almost like literally right literally, 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 literally as yeah. as pieces of a machine you know Labor and. Yeah, you know, and, and like very, very literally, and that's and that's fine. But no one knows what to do after the revolution, right? So the idea is, you know, the 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 main revolution guy, the guy who was part of the masses, part of the class that wants to revolt, and is now suddenly this hero, and now the the guy they're revolting against wants him to take over. He says no. He puts his arm down there. He loses his arm. He sacrifices himself, basically, right? But at least in this case, we have this third party. It's not just this binary thing. You have the Korean um, daughter. I'm assuming it's Korean anyway. The the dude and his daughter, right? And she's clairvoyant, and he is like a super hacker dude, and he wants to get out of the train, you know? But okay, so. They blow up the train. The train goes off the tra- tracks. A lot of shit blows up. They're on a fucking slope, <laughs> snowy slope. Everything derails. Up. It derails. I, I still wonder what happened to the manta ray. And, and now, <laughs> at the end, you've got what's going to happen. And only two people emerge from the train, the, the, the daughter and this like really young, like, like five, six year old kid, I guess. Right. Is that about right? (laughs) Yeah. Spare part kid. Right. They emerge somehow. (laughs) Spare part kid. For some reason. (laughs) Yeah. For some reason, they, they, they have a, a fur coat that fits him. Why they have a fur coat that fits a five-year-old, I'll, I'll never understand. But okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. Take his measurements earlier. Right. Yeah. I'll just <laughs> on that. Right. You know. So they they emerge, and they see a polar bear. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my first thought is, well, my first thought is, is, is anyone else going to emerge from this train? My second thought is that polar bear has got to be hungry. I thought about that too. <laughs> because of the freeze frame, I'm like, aha, life. And look yeah. at and and what life, you know, this endangered species from man made it. So uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that last image is so loaded. I love it. Yeah. yeah I didn't think I, about him eating the kids. 
Oh no, I thought about that too. I was like, boy, that polar bear probably hasn't hasn't eaten in a while, and there, there's a couple of good meals. See, I never yeah. I ne- never even entered my mind for a second. All I thought of was the fact that there was, you know, life was being sustained by this by this creature whose habitat was was at the basis for the entire story, right? Right. Yeah. Warming, yeah. and and we freeze frame on that that it survived, that nature found a way, even if man, you know, fucked Couldn't it all up. Yeah, yeah, so um I didn't think about that. But I did love that last image, you know. I, uh, oh I did too. I love the, the last the last image was great. I found it incredibly problematic. <laughs> incredibly problematic. I was I uh I mean I get it, but part of me is like, okay, where'd the polar bear come from? How's he been living this whole time? So so you can look at it as, oh well, the polar bear's living because there are lower life forms that he's been eating, it's been eating, and which means there are other lower life forms, are. right? I gotta stop right there. The point is, is we don't know anything because we're we're we are spectators through the eyes of the people on the train, and they've been out right. for seventeen years, so we don't have any of the answers to those questions. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, all we have is the voiceover at the very beginning of the of the movie that says that all life forms have been killed. But even that, we know that in ice there are microorganisms that right. survive. Well, know, and, and the polar bear, the, yeah, and the polar bear proves that they're wrong. That that, mm-hmm. that voiceover was wrong, right? Because right? if they'd all been killed, there would not be a polar bear. So right. that that's obviously not correct. Yeah, that right. that part, and that part is the part for hope. It's like, oh, well, maybe the voiceover was wrong because the Korean guy was like, hey, that plane every for the last 17 years i could see more and more of the plane the snow is melting this inuit guy told me about all the different types of snow this is the type of snow that melts that i get all that so then you can see the polar bear and you're like oh the voiceover was wrong all life did not die Mm -hmm. there's hope because if that polar bear is alive either it was hibernating for a really long time or it's been eating and if it's been eating, that means there's other stuff out there, and that's the so, hopeful. So is it problematic right? though? I don't get it. Well, to me, it's like, well, I mean, just knowing bears, I mean, polar bears are the most vicious bears oh, there are. Okay. You don't want to fuck with a polar bear. Yeah, and to me, it's like you can look at that polar bear as a sign of life. You could look at that polar bear as a sign of food for those two people who emerged from the train, or you could look at those polar bear as a predator who's about to eat those fucking people, which is how I looked at it. But that's, I mean, I get that there's different well, interpretations. That's, kind of, that's cool. To me, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. But like to me, like, like what? what's, what's going to happen? I mean, I have to. I mean, I'm. A, are you guys assuming that more people will emerge from the train in addition to those two people? Yeah, maybe one or two. I figure that if the, the bear wants to eat them, they'll run back to the train and sort of like find shelter, and yeah. and then maybe they can. Because the engine's probably still going. Something, yeah. I imagine there's. I don't know, man. They did a good job of making sure that you saw that train completely demolished, but cause yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking that. I'm thinking that. Wow, you know, Some, these, these are the last two people. Um, Boy, yeah. you know, a 17-year-old girl and a five-year-old. A 17-year-old girl and a five-year-old boy. I mean, this is this is gonna be this is gonna be tough. That's problematic. Um, that's problematic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, yeah, yeah, and it does it does. When in you a think snow about field. It, in a snowfield, it does. I love it does that to it gives, a certain extent. Baiting the possible scenarios here, and that's that's why I think the the freeze frame, you know, like Chris Nolan's ending to to Inception. You know, it's like we don't want right. to go one way or the other, so we just freeze frame on the. Yeah. On the the polar bear, and it gets us talking about what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is that's I think maybe that's what's 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 fun about it is you know there are all these different 
things that could happen. And yes, I mean, the, the, it, it is problematic for, for many, many reasons. Well, yeah, now I know um, what Eric means by problematic. Yeah, it's right. def- <laughs> definitely problematic. Yeah, so, I mean, beyond that, though, I mean, it's still a good ending, you know, because they, they escape, somebody escapes the train. I would have liked to see more people escape the train, I suppose, but whatever, I mean, that's fine. You know, I, I assume that more people will follow them, because how are they the only two? That does, right. you know, that's, that's not they're likely. they're all you know. bad people. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. You know, but... Yeah, no, but it's interesting, you know, because you get like this hope of regenerating a civilization, even against the odds. I, you have to admit, um, but they, you know, they escape the system. You know, the system, the the, the train is a class system, mm-hmm. where you know the the the, the working class, and even the working class, the lower class, are are oppressed by. You know, those who who control the means of production. You know, who who make protein bars out of of cockroaches or whatever insects right and feed it to the to lower class and while they you know get their chronol and their sushi and their you know whatever it is you know you get this closed system of 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 a social system and and the end with the polar bear gives you a third way nice yeah yeah and there's and that's nice i like that you know me too i think all in all it was a there's there's i i've read very few reviews of this, uh, just one actually. And, but what I have seen is more and more people online, Facebook, Twitter, and things like that, um, chiming in. And um, it's, it seems kind of divisive. Some people uh, really loved it, and then other people seem like they uh, don't see what the big deal's about. And, uh, you know, just another, uh, it's overhyped. Yeah. Um, and I guess that kind of sets up uh, our last kind of topic to cover yeah. on the film, which is basically, yeah, the way that this is being distributed. Um, because yeah. I, I sent you guys that article. I don't know if you got it or not. I read it. Uh, about how will Hollywood take a cue from the fact that they didn't have to pour 20 to $30 million. For, I think for every $100 million you throw into a project, I think I think almost like a quarter to a third of it is, is set aside for marketing. Right. Um, and I don't think Snowpiercer did that. Um it really, it really kind of like had a different assault tactic that seemed to actually work. Yeah, well, it had a lot of box office in in Korea, mm-hmm. um, and probably elsewhere. And the Weinstein brothers bought it, and and the uh, the article you sent was from uh, Business, Business Week? Week. Yeah, and it talks about how it might have lost theatrical sales to the VOD, the video on demand, because it was right, released yeah. at the same time. But there's there's another story to that, and which is basically that the Weinstein brothers bought it, and they wanted to release it theatrically in the United States, and they wanted to cut 20 minutes from it and add a voiceover to the beginning and end. Yeah. And I guess the director was like, no. <laughs> so they were like, okay, well, we're going to release it in only eight theaters it was only released in eight theaters for a country uh nationwide but also released on vod at the same time and it was kind of a punishment you know almost like okay well you know you want to stand up to harvey weinstein this is what he's gonna do right exactly you know but the thing is it's making a it's making a, a substantial amount of money and like you said nick like it's it's making less money than it would at the box office right. but they're spending less money to yeah. get it into theaters right. so the the net is is potentially greater 
You know what I mean? This because on VOD. So yeah, so you're absolutely right. So it was it was released that way, not as like this grand experiment, but almost as a punishment. It's like okay, well we'll do this then. And you know what? Gonna, I'm so glad yeah. because for me, when Don told me about that, I said, Don, that doesn't make any sense. Are you sure you got those facts right? And he said, Yeah. And I said, That flies in the face of the sort of like professional ethos that that the Weinstein brothers carved out for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Miramax as being the sort of like they were the distributor of avant-garde, you know, European global cinema that didn't that wasn't going to be, you know, distributed by Fox or or uh, MGM or Paramount or you know, non-blockbuster independent right. film. And so for yeah. them to say, yeah, we'll distribute it. We're going to cut 20 minutes and do and add voiceovers. I was like, who the hell do you guys think you are? That's sort of like the that you you you've become the old arbiters of taste. Yeah, well, they've become what they beheld, you know, and that's so common, you know. Right. Uh, me and my friend Ted call it, uh, or he calls it, and I agree, old fart syndrome. They became what, you know, now t- 30 years later, they're doing what they were fighting against 30 years ago. Yeah, they have. You're right. Well, even a couple of years ago, they, they were the ones that they released Bully and they fought against the MPAA to get a rating on Bully, mm-hmm. you know, because it was an R. They wanted a PG-13. They threatened to not submit films to the MPAA for ratings. And the MPAA was like, well, then we'll treat your films like everything else and not show them, you know. But but still, they're fighting for that. And so right. this, you know, weird. but, you know, so it's, it's, it is weird. But, you know, I'm glad they released it as is. Me you too. know, um, yeah, same here. Yeah, I agree. Otherwise, otherwise we'd have a Blade Runner situation with like five different, oh, men, boy. you know, <laughs> you know, which we should talk about sometime. We uh, should but, not. um, yeah, but it seems, it seems to be working overall because they're not like the idea of VOD taking away from the theatrical release. Like I watched it here in my living room for seven bucks mm-hmm. with my girlfriend and, would I have gone and paid, uh, you know, eight bucks per, so sixteen total or nine, you know, eighteen? Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But here's the thing: after seeing it on my TV screen for seven bucks, I might, I might go watch it. I might be more willing to go see it in the theater because this is the type of film that I think demands a second viewing. Mm-hmm. I and agree. I think that, like, now that I've seen it, like, I could see. I, I probably won't, but I could see going out and seeing it in the theater after watching it on VOD. So you're making it twice if if it stays in theaters that long, you know? Yeah, I I agree with I I agree with you too. This 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 is a kind of a film that it, it's a good film to see in the theater and and um yeah, yeah I I agree. And I, no, and I think the, it, oh, go ahead, Nick, go ahead. Dude of Eric's uh, Don's basement. It's like going to the theater. So well, yeah. <laughs> right, uh, right. Sadly, I live in my own apartment and not Don's basement, but I'm hoping for an invite one of these days to Don's basement because it sounds great. We should also have him on the podcast sometime soon. Yeah, we should. Yeah. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, and you know, inversely to that, um, I don't think they lost money from me getting it on VOD because I probably would. I mean, there's a good chance I would never have seen it in the theater anyway, you know, so at least they got their seven bucks out of me right. while it was in the theater, because if they had waited for VOD, I might have forgotten about it, which I do a lot of films. Sure. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll wait until it's on you know, DVD and I forget about it, you know, so I think day and date releases are the way to go. I, I just wish more would do it, you know, because we don't. It, 
it's not easy for all of us to get to the theater, you know. No. So anyway, uh, you know, we'll 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 see how it bears out. You know, we we can figure out. But yeah, it's it's I think it's a good strategy. You know, it's getting a hell of a lot more buzz, a hell of a lot more buzz than it would have if yeah. they release it in theaters only. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The social, the, the the whole social media aspect about it, um, and the fact that you have this kind of underground movement of people who are interested in these types of films, um, you know, have have kind of brought it bubbling to the surface. Yeah, and the fact that I we can release this podcast in a couple of days once I get done editing, you know, and you know, probably on August first, I can link to to Vudu and Amazon and iTunes where it's where it's available. Right. While it's in the theaters, and that will generate more uh, revenue for them, potentially with our, you know, um, cause we have a, such a huge listenership. <laughs> but, you're welcome, Harvey Weinstein, if you're listening. You're you're yeah. welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> He'll be emailing us soon to try to get on the show, but you know, right. we'll see. We got we got we have a pretty full roster. So we'll see. Harvey, we'll take your reservation. We'll, we'll try to get you on the show, but you know, no no guarantees. <laughs> Should we move on? Yes. All right. So let's just move to segment two. Um, segment two of episode number 25. We're going to talk about films about books. No, we're not. What? Segment two. <laughs> edit. Uh, segment two of, of episode 25. We're going to talk about books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I went out with uh, Rebecca and I had like I had two martinis at the bar, oh. and then I had to pick, so, like they might be playing in. Films about books. All right. Films about films. Books about books. Books about films. Films about books. Now we're going to talk about uh, books about films, and which which is a topic that Nick brought up a, a couple weeks ago, and and we uh, are now just getting to, and we had no guidelines for this, which which I think means we're going to have some very different books, but. Um, It'll be fun. So, yeah, and what mind. bothers me is that uh, when I initially suggested it, I had a very specific book in mind, and and I, I forgot what that book is. Obviously, because we all own a lot of books about film. Um, yeah, I can I cannot remember what it was, but uh, since we talked about redoing it tonight, um, I decided to go. I guess I'll lead off. I decided to go with. And who knows, since I can't remember, who's to say that this actually wasn't what I had originally thought? Okay. <laughs> Ooh, how about that? That'll bake your noodle. Um, so what I'm, what I'm uh, going to offer to listeners is very autobiographical. For me, as a 19, 20-year-old, um, going to bookstores and trying to buy every every book on film I could find. Mind you, this was, you know, in the late 1980s. And, you know, there wasn't that many books on film out there. Uh, the, big, the big glut of um, critical and academic writing and historical writing on film really started in the 70s, little by little, and uh, had a, a little boom in the 80s. Uh, more so in the 90s and in the 2000s, it was kind of just a glutting. I mean, there's like, you want a book on the output of uh, John Cassavetti's career from 1971 to 1972? It's out there. Yes, I mean, so it's like, now everything has been over-explained and over-massaged. But at 1918, in the late 80s, 
there's very little out there. You had your basic, you know, intro to film textbooks and you had some stuff that had been written, you know, and there was a lot of historical criticism, things like, you know, what, what Roger Ebert had written or Leonard Moulton's books on comedy teams and things like that. But William, Kim, William K. Everson, Everson, so on and so Carlos Clarence, but I digress. For me, the Bible, what really did it for me was the three-volume set that Danny Perry had put out, Cult Movies 1, Cult Movies 2, and Cult Movies 3. Uh, which we will link to on the podcast. If you don't know these books, and I'm, I'm guessing a lot of you don't, because when I taught a class on cult movies, um, you know, th- those were not required reading, but it was supplemented, it was suggested on the syllabus, and a lot of students bought them because Danny Perry, who's all but retired from film criticism, he, he's just simply like the best writer of, about film out there still. You know, and I say this 30 years later after he's written all this stuff, because what Perry would do, Perry has a master's in cinema studies from, I think it's USC. So he's not like a, not a professor, he's not a PhD in this. He's just a brilliant historian. And what he does is he, he chose a sort of a canon of cult films, gave a rationale as to why he did that. Uh, what was a cult film, tried to define it, and then did these three volumes. He did three volumes because each one was so successful, they wanted to do a second and third. Um, The first book is massive. It has 100 films. The second book has 50. The third book has another 50. So you have 200 films with brilliant synopses um, and then really astute uh, observations and criticisms and historical information and analysis about these films. Perry is so good at it that he basically provided the engine and template for later historians that would, you know, say someone wants to write about, you know, a film that Chris and I love, like Phantom of the Paradise. Well, very little was written about Phantom of the Paradise in the in the 70s and in the 80s and in the 90s. It wasn't until recently. But if you wanted to find something, guess what? Danny Perry had done it. You know, I mean, it's like Danny Perry had written about because, of course, Phantom of the Paradise is one of his entries. And so when you, it's so funny when you read books of the last 15 years on various topics, when they want to go back and quote a literary source, they quote Danny Perry. And so it all began for me. Danny Perry brought me down that rabbit hole that I had already gone down, but he brought me deeper and deeper into it and, and is, is, is largely responsible. And I still haven't seen all of those 200 films. And guys, I've seen a shitload of films. And I still have not seen those 200 films, all 200 in, in, those two, in those three volumes. So I will gladly link to them. And please, you can find these books online used for very reasonable prices. Your film education, if you want one, starts there. Why did we let him go first? <laughs> we should have made him go last because... I know, right? Looking good. I don't know what you have, but it's gonna. I know what I have is gonna pale in comparison. Oh, vastly so. pale in comparison. You can go. You can go, Eric. Yeah. Um. We should sign off right now and just let that be the, the segment two. Just let, <laughs> right. let's just yeah. like, be segment two and be done with it because you know. With with your uh, with your picks. Okay. Pick well, yeah, I'll just edit it out and just have Nick be the only one. So anyway, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you brought this up a couple, probably uh, about a month ago, almost. You know, and I've been thinking about that, and you know, it, it turns out I don't read a lot of books on film. Maybe I sh- maybe I should, <clears throat> but I but I don't. You know, and um, 
and so you know, I picked up uh, Catherine Hepburn's autobiography recently. You know, well, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, a book about film that I that I think is really interesting and haven't gotten completely through yet is uh, is you know our our guest uh, Chuck Tryon's on demand culture, mm-hmm. digital delivery and the future of movies. You know. Um, these are the types of books I like because they talk about like what's coming, what's sure. what's happening now in movies, you know. But to me, the best books about film that that I can that come to mind are fiction, mm-hmm. like fictional books that treat film in different ways. And I and I think I probably said this on previous podcasts, and I'll probably say it again. But I think films like um like David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, for example, it. it it's a it's a book that does film theory in a way that's not film theory you know it, it it's fiction it's entertainment to i mean depending on who you ask you know um but it but it tells you things about the film industry and film culture and film history in ways that most film theory history culture books don't and to me that like the the, the books that do that uh, i think thomas pynchon does that in a great way um particularly maybe, maybe in gravity's rainbow i suppose um uh, it, those types of books to me are the ones that like the ones that speak to films that don't even exist or, or might exist or, you know, sure. you know, those sorts right. of things to me, um, you know, um, another, like, my, one of my favorite novels uh, to this to date is, especially in the last decade is um, chronic city by Jonathan Lethem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and this Chronic City is about a guy who does the, the liner notes for uh, Criterion Collection films, and he meets this guy who is is really obsessive about particular films, some of which I I'm pretty sure don't exist, you know, and uh, but it ends up the, the film the, the the novel ends up being this kind of. Uh, commentary on mediated society on film on digital media on simulacrum simulacra i should say it's just it's just this really it, it sneaks up on you in a way you know and to me those books are the best so i would i would say jonathan lethem's chronic city david foster wallace's infinite jest um those are those are two that come to mind but like these films that are not about film but they're kind of about film because would be in there too yeah flicker is definitely in there flicker, too. yeah yeah yep yeah absolutely flicker you know and and these films kind of teach you about film criticism in ways that they kind of sneak up on you a little bit if that makes sense you know and and so when it comes to books about film, those are the ones that that most come to mind to me. Strangely enough, you know, because I've read so many books about film, but I'm not going to recommend theory. I'm not going to recommend Zizek or something like that. You know, harkening back to last week, you know, um, you know, for just a general reader who wants to read some some fiction that that treats film in certain ways, those are those are a couple of good ones. So, uh, Chris, for me. Um I, I read a lot of film theory, a lot of film history, a lot of film books. Um, and I've actually been asked this by a couple of people. Um, you know, if, if I want to read about film, you know, wh- where do I go? So um, <clears throat> typically what I've suggested um, is, and I think you might have alluded to this, is a couple of bi- – there's one biography in particular. It's Alan on Alan. 
um, it's an autobiography. It's, it's basically Woody Allen um, talking about his life and his career. And I, I tell have that people, right here. I, I, I have that on my shelf right in front of me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tell people to start there. And then um, I, also have pe- I also have told people to read film reviews. So um, things like Andrew Saris, Pauline Kael, Roger Ebert. Um, just because, you know, it, it's, really, and it's really interesting to read, like, the divergent opinions from these people. Uh, like, you know, and, and, and kind of where, where film um, reviewing <coughs> and popular film criticism has gone over the past few years. Um, I'm sorry, the past few decades. So I will oftentimes pe- turn, pe- point people to that, and then um, Pauline Kale has a really good uh, had a, a really good biography, autobiography called "My Life in the Dark," about film reviewing and her career as a film critic for the New Yorker. Um, the other thing that I have people that I've had people read, and um, I usually if people can actually if people actually buy this and they read it, then I know that they're really into film. And that's um, uh, the University of California Press years ago did a whole series on the history of the American cinema. And they were these, yeah, Nick, Nick knows these. And I think we, we read one on the 80s you know, for a class. And they're these big, thick tomes, but they're, they're, they're um, by decade. Mm-hmm. So 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, and for, I, I, I tell people, if you ever want, if you've got a lot of time on your hands, and you want to read a good history of film, comprehensive history, um, read that, mm-hmm. and and and, the, and you'll you'll get everything you wanted to know plus some. Um, so those 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 are some of the ones, and and then you I mean occasionally you get you know um, you get people who who uh, like oh you know I recommend like autobiographies or memoirs. About you know if they want to know oh like the the stories the inside stories and stuff like that. Um, apparently Shirley Jones, I haven't read it, but Shirley Jones wrote a really um, tell-all memoir, very very titillating from what I heard, um, and very blunt about her her career and her sex life. I'm like oh you can always read that if you want to get some inside stories. So. The, the two best biographies I ever read, autobiographies uh, for film, were probably Robert Evans' The Kid Stays in the Picture and Roman Polanski's uh, Roman. Uh, mm. Those were probably the two best I read. And for I was going to say, when Chris was talking and he said that people have asked him, you know, like I'm a big film fan and I'm looking for a book to read, uh, you know, to get me started. I uh, I don't think you guys are gonna be able to to. Stick. <laughs> but, oh yeah. Um, yeah true. The, true the, the, yeah, the listeners won't be able to see this, but I'm holding up basically yeah, Truffaut Hitchcock, which is you know the definitive, probably like the best starting place yeah. for um, a definitive study on on uh, Hitchcock as visual poet, um, and his pure cinema techniques. So that's that's uh, I think that's I underscore that as essential reading. Everybody that should be on everybody's uh, bookshelf who's into film. Yeah, the uh, Truffaut Hitchcock, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> cool. All right, excellent. Um, this has been a this has been a good show, I believe. Um, a lot of fun. Yes, indeed, yes, indeed. So, we're uh, 
you know, you can you can find us at that's a rap show dot com. It's a rap with a W. Uh, we're on rap podcasts on Twitter, uh, but you can find all that on the website that's rap show dot com. Uh, you can you comment on this episode or any other episode you want. Uh, you can tell us we're full of shit or that you think we're the greatest thing since sliced. Uh, you know. Uh, celluloid if you want <laughs> that's cool we, we like compliments that's cool too um <laughs> but uh yeah it's fine so that's rap show.com and for that's a wrap i am eric marshall and i'm nick schlegel and i'm chris Cullen. all right and that's a wrap cut that's a wrap <laughs>